You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. I was uh, thinking about this um, uh, this week, uh, getting ready for a message, and um, I remember I could not wait. I was like 16. I'd already bought a Nissan Ultima teal uh, with a leather interior. Uh, and I was so ready. And so I went down there and I passed, I failed my first driver's test because I didn't put my seatbelt on when I turned on the car. And so, uh, they shut me down. But that second one, once that, once I got that license, your boy was out. I was off to the races and it was a great time. And, um, got it, got a license and, and it was a, obviously a big mile marker in life. I can remember getting my, my driver's license. I remember getting my, my teacher's license. Um, it was, uh, in Bloomington, Indiana, go Hoosiers. And so uh, I remember walking across uh, the stage uh, with my dad cheering way louder. You know, they tell your dad not to cheer, and that's just like, you give a person a law, and they're ready to break it. You know what I mean? And so he was like, Rawr, you know. Uh, and I, I even remember this one time um, getting a fishing license. And I'm not a great fisherman, but I was down in uh, Florida one time in the Keys, and it was like, dude, did you know that you can just go down in the water with a net and go catch lobsters? And I was like, lobsters? And he's like, yeah, for free. And he's like, yeah, it's lobster season. So... I signed up online, it was $27, got myself a fishing license. And I was thinking about that, I thought, you know, it's pretty crazy when you think you need a license to operate a motor vehicle, uh, you do need a license to be a teacher here in the state of South Carolina public schools, and you also need a license apparently to fish, in, at least in Florida and in multiple places. But it's crazy, they actually don't make you uh, need a license to raise kids. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Like, I remember uh, the hospital, they, they had a bunch of stuff about shaken baby syndrome, which made me be like, wait a minute, what is even going on in this place when they showed me the videos? Uh, shaken baby syndrome, they gave you the video for feeding babies, and they were real big on the car seat. Like, do you have a car seat? Do you have the, fi- the five-piece the five piece harness, you know? I think they were, like, f- channeling all of the expectation into that car seat. Like, this is, this is the picture, like, safety first. So they, they make you go out, and, you know, we already had our car seat. We, we uh, lavished, and we had so many gifts for the first, first for Rosie. And so we had the... The, the seat in there, and that lady buckled us in, make sure, check the five-port harness, and then, you know, closed the door and basically was like, good luck, dude. <laughs> Sent us off with a human being, you know, like no license, no class, no signing, just like raise another human being, you know. And so uh, I, we got four kids, and, and the oldest is, is 15 going on 16, and so I don't know a lot of things. There's people, go talk to other people. They're better at me than this than me. But um, if I wrote a book, here's, here's what the book would be called. If I wrote a book about parenting, 38 years old. This is, the book would be called uh, God Raises Kids. This is, what, this is what my book would be called. And uh, chapter one is uh, because every stinking kid that ever comes into this world is completely different. And if you try to put them on some track, uh, you're just going to frustrate yourself because I know your kid's awesome, but they kind of popped out like knowing the map of the world already. Like you've seen two-year-olds and they can like speak four languages and you're like, I'm not sure if you did that to them. Like there's other kids that are born and they can like make teachers retire early because like they're basically Tasmanians, you know, like, and that has, has a roll of the dice, you know, like chapter one, every kid's different. Chapter two, chapter two is, uh, you know, basically like, I'm not really sure I can make correlative or causal connections between good parents and good kids. Like, I know a lot of great kids with awful parents, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like the parenting kind of doesn't matter. And I know a lot of great parents and, you know, like teach the kids the way they should go that they might not depart, like, is a proverb, not a promise. Like, I know a ton of great people that are just laying it out there for the kids, and the kids are just born that way, you know? 
And so nature, nurture, all that kind of thing. The reality is chapter three is they're all gonna end up in counseling. That's the, that's the promise. Like you, if you have a kid, are signing up to be the topic of somebody's counseling conversation and just deal with that reality, right? Because God, God raises kids. And, uh, and you know what? The good news is past 18, he's also raising you. And so, you know, reading about the law today, it's like when we practice legalism uh, or um, self-righteousness, judgmentalism, or unrighteousness, or, or uh, licentiousness, or, or lawlessness, what we're actually doing beyond the cross is we're criticizing God's parenting. We're telling God, I can raise myself better than you. And so I'm glad that you saved me and everything, but I'm going to go ahead and raise myself, right? And, and so I want to tell you today that as we turn into Romans 8, one of the best verses in all of the scripture that I want you to know, we've been set free from the law of sin and death to live not in lawlessness, but to live alive in the spirit. Um, that is who you are today. God is not a bad parent. and He never neglects or abuses his kids. So your future is secure. You're here to be like Jesus, and he's not going to fail at doing that. And he's a good parent. He never abuses or neglects his, his kids. And no matter how much you screw up or whatever you're doing or however you're parenting yourself or parenting your kids, like, he's driving the bus. He's the parent. You are not. You are the child. And so let me just do a quick little whiteboard for those of you guys that are catching up. In Romans, um, uh, on the far right over here, you're going to see an uh, illustration of the Spirit of God. That's my handwriting for you guys that have seen it. And uh, that is our future. That's where we live. And so just to catch you guys up, we began in Romans chapter 1. Uh, sin is not just a problem, it's a prison. And what makes it worse is we try to fix our own sin ourselves. And legalism added to sin just makes it worse because in trying to fix it ourselves, we don't let God get to us. And so people that are Jewish or people that are Gentile in the same boat, all have fallen short and all are trapped and guilty in sin. And so we're in quite the predicament. And so um, we go on out of this brokenness practicing really two different gutters, uh, even of the gospel, the two different gutters of humanity that Paul has been talking about in parallelism all throughout the Bible. And that is, it's like some of us are in trouble today because we sin like rock stars, and some of us are in trouble because we sin like politicians. Like Jesus is, is coming, and he's saving us from this prison of sin and law and death, and so what that means is the prison bars he's breaking us from is not just lawlessness, but legalism as well. He wants to set us free of both of those. And, and so what's happened is, is the way that uh, Paul uh, prescribes the solution to this sickness is justification by faith, which is a way of explaining that um, through faith, not just my doctrinal ascendancies or my theological premises or whatever, my beliefs about theology, but actually based on my internal um, reckoning of how faithful Jesus is to save me, through that faith, the faithfulness of Jesus uh, puts me on a bus where all I have is the hope of glory in front of me. Where now, not, I'm not only in my afterlife treated like Jesus was because he was treated like me, but I am actually today, what is true of Jesus is now true of me. And, and so that's not just where I go after I die, right? But it's also... Um, who I belong to. It is um, also uh, united in Christ with his wisdom, united in Christ with his counsel, united in Christ with his truth, united in Christ with his kingdom, united in Christ with his perseverance, united in Christ with his uh, persecution. Like, like we, are, we are in Christ, and like we talked about 
in, in future messages, like if we're the country of America and we, and we send out one representative to go represent us and we all get the gold medal, we have, we have looked, looked towards God in Christ and we've said, who is the faithful representative who's gonna go before us and, and earn us what we can't earn ourselves? And so that is what's true of you when you're in Christ. And so you are now set free. And so this is essentially what, where he's at right now in, in chapter seven and eight where we are is he is making this claim that anybody that is in Christ is not just better, cleaner, smarter, faster, but they're new. That their old man died with Christ. You, actually, it's rude of me to say, died 2,000 years ago. You didn't even get an invitation. You didn't even invite your dad. You're already dead. You died. You already died. You died with Christ 2,000 years ago, and that's what you were proclaiming to everyone else when you went under in the water in baptism. So you died, okay? Uh, the tombstone that's gonna sit over the grassy knoll where you're gonna be buried is actually just measuring the the lifespan of your body, which is just here for a short period of time, and the life that you're living right now is no longer living but Christ in you, which means that you are actually living the afterlife, and then when your body dies, you're just going to live the life after afterlife. You are alive in Christ. So the old man is dead and crucified, and you are now alive. And that is, that is all that is true of you. And we'll, we'll get into some of that more in Romans 7, okay? But here's the deal. The deal is, um, although you are born in Christ today, uh, the first whatever, 16, 20, 50 years, or however long it was that you were in Adam, uh, you are born in Christ today, you were also raised in Adam. And so, so Jesus and the Spirit is discipling you that you are dead to the law, that you are dead to sin and trespass, but you tend to reach back towards it. You're tempted to reach back into your old life because that's your, that's your nurture. That's what you've been, been brought up to do. And so that's exactly where, where we find ourselves today in, uh, in Romans chapter 7, um, and, uh, and we are going to, by the end of this time, through basically a quick little sermon, Paul's going to preach a quick little sermon to us. He's going to give a, a quick little prayer journal. He's going to open up his prayer journal. He's going to kind of open up his heart a little bit and, and share with you how he responds to the gospel. And then he's going to lead us in a prayer. So it's a sermon, a journal, and a prayer from Paul. And, and, and by the end of it, uh, my, my look at this is that, that Paul and, and the Spirit through Paul is leading us in, in how God kills legalists. He came to put to death the sinner, but he also came to put to death the legalist in you. And he's, got to, he's doing both of those in the spirit effectively. Like with precision, he's doing that in you. And it's not even up to you. He's raising you well. And, and so he's going to lead us through a sermon, a journal, and a prayer of how God kills legalists. The death of a legalist. All right, so this is his sermon. Here it goes. Uh, verse 1. Uh, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, and the law has authority over someone only as long as the person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. That's brilliant. I mean, gosh, that's the best sermon illustration you could think of, right? So um, the law is like a covenant, and it's not just like punitive law down at the state of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. It is... Uh, priestly law. It is, uh, you are royal priesthood, and so unto the nations, this is how you are becoming my bride, right? So, so God married us to the law, and what he's saying is, is that when we died with Christ to live with him, we also died to the law. So verse three, so then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is uh, still alive, she is called an adulteress, but if her husband dies, she is released from that law and not an adulteress if she marries another man. All right, then he applies it. Verse four, so my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, 
to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear the fruit of God. So every metaphor breaks down. You know that, like sermon illustrations, like you could tell a story and it works in these three ways, but not this fourth one. And there's actually a metaphor breakdown. Did you catch the metaphor breakdown, right? Because in the, in the sermon illustration, in the marriage, uh, who is the person that dies in the marriage? In the first illustration, when, when he says, hey, look, the law is kind of like a marriage, and so, you know, you're married to this law, and the guy's like the law, and, uh, and the woman is the bride, and that's you, and you married the law, and then who died in the illustration? The husband died, right? But if you look at verse, verse 4, what's he saying? So my brothers and sisters, the law didn't die. What, what happened? Well, well, you died. Right? So every metaphor has to break down. So let's keep going. So, so you died to the law. The husband didn't die. Verse 5, for when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we, were, uh, we serve in a new way, in the way of the spirit and not the old way of the written codes. So it's just like, imagine like if your son, your next son that you have, is Jesus, right? Like, is it, you just think Mary, like there's a lot of good jokes about that. Like, um, Jesus, can you, can, can you talk to your husband, to my, your dad right now? Because he's like, Joseph, he's really messing up. Like, like, what does it look like to have a perfect kid? Essentially, I think it would mean something like this. Like, if you left the house over the weekend to hang out while you went on a business trip, like, you wouldn't have to give him any rules, right? At least, because he's a perfect kid. Right? Isn't that the answer? Like, if you are a perfect child, you don't have to give a perfect kid any laws because the law is effectively not dead, but essentially written inside their heart. They sort of know what to do. And not only do they know what to do, they're wise in the, in the, in the Lord and fear the Lord with all their heart and mind, strength, and all sorts of things. Like, the law exists actually written and transcribed, you know, in their, in their heart. And so I thought about this analogy. This would be my sermon analogy. Um, I, uh, I got uh, Eric Bunch, uh, who's a ooh, ER person, uh, to make me this. Oh, that's a cute little cast. Look at that. I haven't seen this. Make this cute little cast. Have you guys ever broken a foot before? Ever broken an arm or whatever? It's itchy and you kind of can't go anywhere. It always happens in the summer. Can't go swimming. You know what I mean? Can't get out there. It's awful, right? And so, and man, they stink. You ever take one off? Whew, they, whew, just make somebody pass out. And so, matter of fact, I tried to get a bunch of them and uh, nobody would volunteer because they smell so bad. And so you get out, get out of this cast and, um, and what's awesome about this is you realize like the cast is really cool, but you know, really the miracle is the healing. Because the law, it holds you like, it holds you tight in suspension, but it can't get inside of you to heal you. All the time, the law is there, like it's, it's, it's there to, for the right purposes, it's a good thing, but it protects you, but it's only for a season. It's like a custodian for your leg for a little bit until your leg's ready to heal, right? And so what essentially is happening is Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel, Jesus, I'll fulfill the law, is the law actually doesn't die. The law actually gets written into the heart so that the person dies and doesn't have to live under the law anymore because they're like Christ. That's, that's essentially what's going on. Now, here's, here in this analogy, I think, is, is really great because it kind of tells us, like, I get why if I get saved, why it'd be tough not to go back to Vegas. Like, it's five o'clock, I'm just like mad, like my marriage isn't going right, my kids aren't going right. It's like, I just want to go back to live, go back to New Orleans and just party it up. You know what I mean? Like, I just want to get out of it and I want to go back. Now, the question, though, is like, why, though, if you are free in the spirit and dead to the old man, why would you go back to the law? Why would you go back to the law? And here's what, what I think it is. See, what if I broke my leg, right, and I got a cast on and it got healed, but afterwards I had to go to physical therapy? Man, wouldn't that be kind of annoying? 
Like the thing about having a broken cast is you sort of sit there and scratch at it, but you're telling everybody else to get your ice cream, you know? If you have to like get out into physical therapy, like you have to do this like humbling work. Like I'm an ACL and I have to go run 100 miles. Like that'd be one thing, but I have to like literally learn to work, work on walking again. Like that's super annoying. And so actually you might think about it. We always think like legalism actually would be hard because you'd have to follow the rules. It could be argued that following the spirit is harder than being a legalist. Because there's actually, I thought of three things actually that, that would be easier to be a legalist. Number one, three things that we love that makes us want to go back to being a legalist. Number one, legalism is super clear in black and white. You know what the gospel is? Kind of gray. Like the gospel is real black and white about things like forgiveness and righteousness and, and the gospel and Jesus and his identity. You know what it's kind of gray on? Like masks. <laughs> Eating rights, you know, social justice, alcohol, to watch Harry Potter or not. <laughs> Yoga, right? And the Bible could have, should have, would have put a list for it, but it doesn't. Because sometimes, uh, uh, sometimes spiritual therapy is harder than spiritual legalism. Sometimes walking things out in the spirit is harder. So I genuinely thought about it this week. You know that Sunday attendance for church across the nation is down 35% in these last two years, partially because of COVID. It's been notching down 2% a year and then 35%. And that's because essentially, probably a lot of us in the South experienced for the first time in our life the ability to not go to church and feel guilty about it. And that's a whole classroom of therapy, Right? For the first time in my life, I have an excuse not to go to church and dealing with whatever that, what comes out of that. Well, here's what's happened to that. I've noticed that in the first two weeks, we got sick of Zoom, and we actually realized that church is actually awesome, and the only reason why we didn't want to go is because we felt like we had to, but now that we got to make a choice, you guys know that kids, when they get the empowerment to make the choice, own it, and they actually like going. I hope that's true of you. I hope that during the COVID season, the Spirit inside of you took the law and put it inside of you, the way that the Spirit that Paul is talking about today but the sad factor is, is that apparently 35% of us didn't. And it became a very real reality that the law that was outside of us was never actually the law inside of us. And we realized that the, that the law could not do what God has come to do in us. And so we are finding ourselves in the same predicament as them, is that if I don't have kosher, if I don't have circumcision, if I don't have the Sabbath, then who am I? So God didn't kill the law. He killed the legalist. He killed the side of us that thought we could earn favor with God by dying to the old man in the water, not just the lawless, not just the Vegas rock star, but also that politician too, that we might be raised up in life again to be a son, all or none. And so that's the sermon. Okay, then he gets into his little journal. Okay, this is how he responds to that, that concept. Verse seven, you know, what, what are we gonna say then? Uh, is the law sinful? Well, no. The law, was, the law was beautiful. I mean, you could break down the laws, like they multiplied the laws out into the, into the, um, the Talmud, and, and, and they synthesized the laws, beat back into three laws and even one law. And so the law is this beautiful, fluid, organic thing that was given to the Israelites in order to keep them safe in their season of waiting and to reveal their sin in front of them, which is what he's about to say. But the law is holy. The law is holy, righteous, good. Like when you got saved, you didn't get saved into standardlessness. You got saved out of a Jewish code that made you think that following it got you saved. Okay, so, so anyways, he's going, no, 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 holy, you know, law is holy, righteous, and good. He says, but here, here's what the problem was. The problem wasn't the law. The problem was you, <laughs> right? The sin 
seizing its opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. You see this? It's like the law came and it revealed sin, but it also provoked it. It's like one of those wet paint signs. When you see the wet paint sign, and it's like you weren't thinking about touching the white stool, but now all of a sudden, you've got some ideas in your head. I mean, how wet is this paint? And if I were to like mark it down with Kyra Wong loves OW, you know, like, would it be there forever, right? Some of this stuff starts going through. Like something in there actually kind of makes it worse. It could makes it worse. It's almost maybe not, it's better to not have it. Not because the law's wrong, not because signs are dumb, because people are dumb, right? And I found that every commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me and through the commandments put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So I've got a, uh, you guys want to hear about uh, 10 dumb laws? I got 10 dumb laws for you that are uh, coming from every state. Let me see if I can still find it. All right, here we go. Uh, in Washington right now, two trains come to a crossing. Neither can go until the other one is passed. Oregon. Anybody here from Oregon? Apparently in Oregon, a door cannot be left open for a longer period of time than necessary. Just makes you ask the question, like, what did the guy do? Like, I don't, the law is fine. I just want to know, like, what did he do that made us have to go all the way down to the courthouse and ruin everybody else's life based on that? Like, how bad was it? California animals are banned from mating publicly. Within 1,500 feet of a tavern, school, or place of worship. Good grief. What in the world is going on? Nevada, it is illegal to drive a camel on the highway. That sounds like it could have been written out of um, uh, the book of Proverbs. A wise man does not drive his camel on the highway. Uh, Idaho, it is illegal for a man to give his sweetheart a box of candy weighing less than 50 pounds. Get it together. I'm asking, I'm asking questions about the husband and the wife at that point. <laughs> Montana, it is illegal to have a sheep in the cab of your truck without a chaperone. It's like a tongue twister. I felt like they just wanted to get somebody with a speech impediment tripped, tripped over that one. All right, Wyoming, it is illegal to wear a hat that obstructs people's view in public theater or place of amusement. That's coming up for Palm Sunday, y'all, y'all hat wearers. Right? Okay, so the perfect kid doesn't need any laws. Because the law is just do what's right. Just do what's right, right? Um, but the dumber you are, the more laws you need. So actually, in the Bible, there's actually only one law. The original law is faith. Like, don't eat from the tree of good and evil. Trust me. But because of that, because God loves us, and the law is not bad, but he wants to hold us safe, he gave us 10 commandments, which really two commandments expanded into 10, love the Lord and love your neighbor. If you don't know what love your neighbor is, stop looking at his wife. How about that? You know, like, you know, the 10 commandments. And then beyond that, you'd be surprised, say, if you read through your Bible plan, it's like, there was actually only 20 laws after that. And the 613, that margin of, of, of emphasis there is basically God having to make up more rules for the Israelite stupidity. Like the volume of laws shows the ignorance of the people that follow them, right? We're adding laws on things because, not because of dumb laws, but because of dumb, dumb law, law followers. And so what Paul is, is essentially saying to us is that the pathway to killing a legalist is, not, is exactly the same as the pathway to uh, killing sin within a person. Do you know what it is? The same way as, as God 
awakens somebody to legalism is the same way he awakens somebody to their sin, which is Romans 1 and Romans 2, is that he just hands them over to it. Like, go follow the law on your own and see what takes place. Because what he's actually finding out is the law was actually not given by God, knowing them and knowing their hearts, so that they would follow it. He was given to them so that they would not follow it and realize that it doesn't only reveal sin, it reveals sinners. That there's a point when I touch that wet paint sign one time, I say, well, at least that's a sin. But by the time I do it 10 times in a row, I'm like, maybe the problem isn't the paint. And then I get into this mentality, like, maybe I better stop touching paint. And I realize, whoa, dude, I'm not just a, I don't just sin. I don't just, I'm not just a sinner. It's like, I am a slave to the prison of sin that is above me, inside of me, around me. It's a poison. It's a prison. And I can't get out of it on my own. And then God's ready to work. So the journal is, is that Paul, who is the circumcised, circumcised, eighth day, legalist guy, knows the law front and back, realizes that there's been a sabotage of this whole thing, is that the law was not given for him to follow. The law was given to him as a mirror to wake up to realize this predicament that he was in, in the first place. And so, uh, and so, and so Paul is basically showing us what Matthew 5 is saying, is that God is wearing us down, and so we're, so we're so poor of spirit that we actually have to cry out to him with no other options. I wonder if there's anybody here, I mean, you don't have to be religious to be a legalist, that is ready to get tired of being perfect. Hey, man, if you, if you want to go follow the law and then leave me in the dust, like, go follow the law and go be perfect on your own. See how that goes. Like, that's his curriculum. That's how he's raising us right now, is he has, before and after Christ, got us on a track to go and try and follow the law on our own. And he's fine with that, because fatigue and exhaustion is the best way to find Jesus. So he's waiting. He's got time. I know. You, you're, moms, you're trying to get that perfect house with the perfect colors and, the, and, and, and be the perfect wife and find the perfect husband and have the perfect kids. And Jesus is saying, the kingdom of heaven is for the poor in spirit. I'll let you do that as long as you want to until you're tired enough to cry out to me with no other options. Some of you guys are working on your body. You want to make sure that it's right. You want to make sure that you're not losing. You're making gains. You're losing weight. And you're going after the perfect thing, right? And he's saying that the death of a legalist is to allow the legalist to follow the law until they're exhausted, and then they can finally cry out with a, with a poor in spirit heart. So Jesus sat down one time with the Ten Commandments. Did you ever hear Jesus preach about the Ten Commandments? This is what he says. Uh, if I could see the purple slide there, Beck, is he says, uh, I know that you've never killed anybody, but um, when you were driving down Woodruff Road and you called that dude an idiot under your breath, like, it's the same thing. You can't just not, I mean, that's, thank you for not killing somebody. That's really good. But then also, the fulfillment of the law is just you not just keeping your hands off of a revolver. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. And you're not there yet. I'm really grateful. You got 40 years of marriage on your belt. That's great. I hope that doesn't make you think you're saved, though, because of your marriage. Because if you undress somebody in the supermarket, you're still broken. You still got cancer. It doesn't matter if it's a spot or if it's 20% of your body. It's still, it's still deadly, still lethal. So what Jesus is poking at here is that the commandment is not necessarily a how to do life the right way. It is a who. It is a mirror to put in front of me that would show me the sin that's inside of me, that sin is utterly sinful, as Paul says, that I might cry out to him with a poor spirit and actually find him for the first time. Is there anyone thirsty in here today? Then ask him and you will find living water. So there were two men in a church, maybe you heard the story in the parable of Luke, that 
they look at the commandment the same way, they read the same commandment, they listen to the same sermon, but they, they closed the sermon and they prayed in two different ways. And one of them essentially just prayed, thank you that you showed me the law that I followed on my own. And the other one essentially prays a prayer that begins and ends with the word that we need to pray today, which is help. Help me. I am an unclean like sinner, and I need your help. I am not my own savior. I need a savior. And how, how effective, how perpetual has, be, has we been in your week this week to, to attack in all angles your self-righteousness that you might find his real righteousness for the first time. To take you from the thank you prayer, right, to the help prayer. And so I don't know if the Ten Commandments are, are, are able to be up there or not back up, but as you think on these, on, these, on these commandments, if these commandments are not a window but a mirror, if you think about the Ten Commandments as you've been uh, taught, how has Jesus been or how might he be being assaulting your self-righteousness that you might find his? That was the purpose of the law, that he would be the fulfillment. Not a dot or tittle, as the King James says, will be avoided or set aside, but rather it'd be fulfilled by you in Christ and Christ in you. So this is the prayer. This is how... This is how Paul recognizes and reckons the death of a, of, a, of a legalist and then how he prays us through it. This is how he, he would pray if he were you. We know the law is spiritual, but we're unspiritual. Sold as slaves to sin. He's speaking there of, of the body. We obviously are spiritual beatings, but he's, he's talking about our daily life and our calendar and our money and all the stuff that kind of goes away. That's a big part of what we do down here. And so he's saying, that's, that's not the spiritual part. Verse 15, I do not understand what I do. This is his relationship to sin as a new man. For what I want to do, I don't do it. But what I hate to do, I still do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I'm just proving the law, the law was right the whole time. It was right about me. Not as a window, but as a mirror. So verse 17, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but is sin living in me. For I know that the law itself does not dwell in me, and that is my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. I'm so poor in my spirit. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do want to do, this keeps on doing it. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin in me that does it. So we did this little chart last week, a Charlie Boyd chart. Uh, if you can make that up there. And uh, I thought it was super helpful. I got a lot of feedback. I think it was encouraging. It was encouraging for me. And uh, just as a review, if you're not here, um, you are not the white part. You are not a body. You are a spirit. And that spirit in you is sharing an identity with Christ. It is the righteousness of Christ. That spirit in you does not have any sin in it. Uh, that spirit in you is not temptable. That spirit of you actually wants to do what God wants to do. That spirit in you does not need the law. Is why you died to it. That spirit in you is a new creation. That spirit in you doesn't need to be in timeout or some kind of corrective behavioral, psychological thing. Like that spirit in you is thriving and it will live for eternity in that state. But that spirit lives in an earth suit and it's smelly and hairy and stinky and stubborn and temptable and gets hangry, and would throw its life away to have sex with somebody for 10 minutes. And there you are. That's where you live. You are living an eternal, as an eternal being right now in Christ, and Christ in you, and the inner man is alive and well and thriving. 
but your outer man, which is wasting away, in which the Spirit intercedes for it constantly and daily to give life to it, it is dying, and it will be remade to be pink in the coming age, in the age to come, so that all of you is, is pink, mind, body, heart, and soul. And so I think the reason why it was encouraging to me, and the reason why it's encouraging probably to you, is that it creates the dynamic between me and God, that if that chart is true, that means that me and God are not God versus me, but rather it's me and God versus sin. It's a huge deal. Because one of the biggest pastoral questions that I get, whether verbally or non-verbally from people, is, yeah, I know that God loves me, but isn't he pretty angry at me right now? Don't I need to be in timeout? Isn't the process of me being raised up in Christ through the idea of he loves me, but he loves me not? Try harder, give up. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Just wait till Jesus comes home. This ping-pong yo-yo Christianity that we go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth gets solved, I believe, in that, in the sense that you are not a body, you are a spirit that lives inside of a body, and so therefore it is not God versus you, it's God and you versus your body, versus the sin that is entangling you. And that's exactly what it seems like Paul is, is talking about today. And so here's the answer, here's the answer. You wanna know what the answer is? Is God angry at you? Is he disappointed in you? Ready? No. You know why? Because you look like Jesus. And your nature is Jesus' nature. And you are now, not when you get it together, the righteousness of Christ in him. And here's how I know that. You know how I know that? I know that because God is sovereign. And for him to be angry at you would mean that he was surprised at what you did. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for your past, present, and future sin. He counted up and collected all the costs of all the sins you and me ever collected and then put it on his shoulder and died to it. So the fact that he's, he's angry or frustrated at you like you got into his garage tools and messed something up seems to say that you're raising yourself instead of him. What is true of you today is true of Jesus. What is true of Jesus is true of you. And so therefore, he can't be angry at you because he's not surprised by what you did. If you go into a cancer clinic right now and your doctor knows that you are diagnosed with cancer, He's not surprised by the specks on your skin. You know why? Because he has been commissioned and has authority to try and go after your cancer to heal it. So he's not angry at a cancer patient for having cancer, and he's not angry at a person that's living in a dead body, right, for the status of the body that they're living in. And so then we can actually come with him and in him, as he has promised that he will always be with us even until the end of the age, headed towards glory, and actually get to business and actually realize who we are and what it is that we're doing. And so this is the prayer. This is how it all comes down at the very end. This is how a legalist dies, verse 21. So I find this law at work. Although I wanted to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work in me. This is how you do it. The end and the death rattle of a legalist sounds like this. What a wretched man that I am. Not how. Who's going to rescue me from this body of sin? Oh, I know, Jesus Christ our Lord. The raising of a son or daughter in Christ is not a how, it's a who. And it's not a rule book or a list, it's a parent. My little buddy Ollie, he's five years old, always remember when you're raising your kids what it's like to be two feet tall when you can't reach anything, right? And everyone's older than you and everyone's already experienced the things you've already experienced, so they're all asking to catch up. Just always remember what it's like to be a caboose of a family. 
And also remember the fact that this guy probably has 10% of the vocabulary that everybody else in the house does. He's not able to say to you, stop patronizing me. But he still feels that way. And so they'll just bottle up aside and get frustrated and flip out because they're born, but they also need to get raised. Right? It's not an overnight thing. You're born and you're raised, both by the flesh and by the spirit. And so you pull that kid in. I mean, you can't do it all the time, but you're working with him to give him the words that he doesn't have, to groan inwardly, the spirit says, towards Abba Father, to give you the words that you don't have, the revelation, the wisdom. It's a parenting thing, not a list thing, not a curriculum thing. And so the truth is of the matter, when they were fighting over their stupid video game or whatever, is that Ali wasn't really mad. He was just super sad and didn't know what to do about it. And when I explained to him the idea of what it feels like to be a small person in a big world and not always being able to get his communication out and what it takes to try and do your best to steward your feelings the way that the Spirit would do inside of us, he experienced with me the, one of the deeper connections that I'd experienced him with all week. He was clinging to me the rest of the day because kids don't get legalized. They get raised. And what, what Ali needed wasn't another list of things to do or just blind experience to go figure it out on his own. Is He needed a parent. He needed a who, not a how. He needed somebody to draw near to and not be afraid of to come near to the one who is going to heal you and raise you and save you because he's not surprised by your sin because he's sovereign over it and he already died for it and he's a better savior than you are a sinner. So the way that a, the way that a legalist dies is the same way that a lawless person, a sinful person dies, and that is by faith. That's the answer. How does a legalist die? He dies by coming to the end of his spirit. The Christmas Eve of the gospel is the poverty of spirit. To come to him empty-handed, no one will leave empty-handed. To, to, to say to Jesus, I cannot fix this thing, but I know that you can. That's the difference between a legalist and somebody that's walking in faith. Say, I cannot fix this thing, but I know who can. And it's coming to the end of that thing. And maybe it's to do the same exact thing the same exact way, but with a different spirit, with an understanding that, yes, I might walk in righteousness today, but it's not my righteousness, it's his. And that's a huge difference between person A and person B and what they're doing and what they're praying. Who they think is giving them the righteousness is everything about whether or not they're a legalist or not. So here's, the, here's the, the, the actual solution. So Romans 3, it's from the very beginning. He's been telling us all along. This is what he's saying. He's saving the self-righteous and the unrighteous the same exact way. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is not a manual in self-help. It is power like you've never known. It is a person with grip you don't understand. And even when you are not fighting for yourself, he is fighting for you more than you ever know. Even when you're running from him, he's running towards you. And he will not allow you to resist rebel against his grace. Grace is not a couch. It is his grip on your life. And God does not neglect or abuse his kids. It is the power of the gospel that brings salvation, yours and mine, to everyone across statuses and backgrounds. First for the legalist and then for the lawless. For the self-righteous and for the unrighteous, both in kind, the younger brother and the older one. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is being revealed through this. The righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written. The righteous will live by faith. This is where legalists and lawless people come to die. At the crossroads of faith. The place where I realized that, yes, there's great books to read, and yes, there's great sermons to listen to, and yes, there's intentionalism, yes, there's ways to take care of my body, right? But none of that saves me. And he is adamant about making sure that whatever step of faith you ever take, you realize is a gift and not a wage. And he will not spare you any pain until you realize that, because that's where freedom exists. 
right? Righteousness is not a how, it is a who. And righteousness can tell you to work harder and work less as long as it's faith. And so I want to speak to you today, because we're really both the older son and the younger son combined. I want to tell you today is that if you're a legalist today, and you are, if you're a legalist today, the reason why that I'm going to guess that you are a legalist is because you've seen people let go and give up, but you've seen them do it without faith. And so the gospel gutter usually is where, we, where people are, are raised up without a lot of order and in chaos and with sinfulness and licentialness, we swing the gospel gutter all the way over here and we end up in legalism. And I just want to tell you that what you saw there was letting go, but it wasn't letting go in faith. It was more like giving up and giving in. And so the language here as we move into Romans 8 and next week is that you are not set free from the law just to do whatever you want. You're set free from the law to become a son in the spirit. And you can work for or against that cause, but God's going to beat you at that. He's seen the end of it, and we are more than conquerors. Neither height, death, angels, demons, nor your stubbornness is going to keep you from the hope of glory that's to come. You're going to be made like Jesus by hook or by crook because of the grip of Jesus on you, yeah? And so letting go, I would just say to you as a legalist, like, Sometimes faith does look like coming to church 52 weeks a year. And sometimes it means sleeping in. In faith. And the person beside you, actually their faith might look like going to church 52 weeks a year, but not for you. And here's my thing. If you crash your plane on Friday and you realize that the outside of your cup is super clean, but inside you're a disaster, that's not his righteousness, that's yours. And faith is telling you to do whatever you need to do in terms of the cleaning of the inside or the outside of the cup, to get to the feet of Jesus and say, I don't have righteousness, I need yours. Wicked man that I am, who will save me from this body of sin? Jesus Christ our Lord. That's your, that's your assignment this week, is to be in faith. What does he say to the person in Corinth about the way they eat or the way they don't eat, where they go to church or they don't go to church, the way they pray or they don't pray? Legalists find a way to use all sorts of activities to try and earn their way to salvation. But the only way, right, for a person to be freed from the bondage of legalism is the same way as the sinful person is faith. So if you eat or drink or give or serve, do it slowly in, in physical therapy and ask yourself the question like, is this me trusting myself or trusting him? To the lawless person in, in this room, to the person that just kind of, oh, God just kind of came here so I just partied up and have a good time. It's like, when Ollie comes to my side and I, and I parent him, it's not that he doesn't have to try. It's just that he's trying in response to my voice and that's the difference. And so I'm, I would compel you to think about this. What you're probably responding to when you, when you think of, 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 of legalism is you're probably responding to some teacher or professor or some parent who is, who is following Jesus, right, but not in faith. And the experience that you have that felt dry and felt like it was empty and felt like it didn't have faith in it, right, was probably more about you operating in fear than it was in faith in the first place. And so if we are legalists or lawless, if we, are, if we are walking or waiting, let us let go and try hard in faith because we are being raised up in the spirit through a new kind of law, which is the law of faith, obedience to faith. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.